Well, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. It is such a blessing to be here this morning. I love preaching on this Sunday, this first Sunday of the new year, because I think it's such a strategic time for us to think back about what God has done and look ahead and think, what might God have for us in this next year? And so I'm excited to share this morning some of what I know God is sharing with my family this year, and I hope and pray that it'll be a blessing for all of us here this morning as well. One of the prevailing lies in our culture is that money or more is the key ingredient to a happy life. Now, I'm sure you've heard the saying, money can't buy happiness, right? Or perhaps in the famous words of the philosopher Mace, more money, more problems, right? Now, we know, and maybe you're sitting here today and you say, yeah, I've heard that, but I know it's not true. Or maybe you're sitting here today and you say, yeah, I kind of do believe that. But I think the truth is that while we've heard it, whether we believe it or we don't, there are very few of us who really live in a way that embodies something different. Another alternative. I mean, the truth is that money can't buy happiness. And it's been proven time and time again. I mean, you know the stories. You hear the stories of the lottery winners, of the famous people who strike it rich and lose everything, or the people who have put all their hope for joy and satisfaction in their stuff, and it all ends up falling apart. Now, money doesn't equal destruction, but if money becomes what you pursue for fulfillment in your life, it will destroy you. In Acts 20, verse 35, the Apostle Paul quotes Jesus, who in classic fashion flips our whole perspective right on its head in one sentence. He says, not only is it false that money can't buy happiness, Jesus says, it is better to give than to receive. Jesus is saying that money, not money or anything else you could receive or possess, will bring you more joy or more happiness than giving. Giving something away is better than possessing it. But could that really be true? I mean, really. Maybe you've heard that phrase before and you say, well, yeah, sure, sure, I believe that. But do you really believe it? Could it really be true that the road to happiness is not one of self-centered acquisition, but a road of other-centered generosity? In our culture today, our culture of entitled consumerism, I don't think that there is anything more countercultural than truly embracing Jesus' call here to be a generous person. So what's right? What's all alternatives? Is it better to give than receive? Is that really true? Which road leads to the road of happiness and which one is a dead end? Well, recently, two professors, one Elizabeth Dunn, a social psychologist and a professor at the University of British Columbia, and secondly, Michael Norton, a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, set out to try to answer this question once and for all. So what they did is they went around to 136 different countries, all different ranges, socioeconomic levels, and ethnicity, and they gave people money. A lot of money or a little bit of money, depending on where they were. 
And they said, you have to spend this on yourself to some. And to others, they said, you have to spend this on somebody else. You have to give it away. And what they did is they followed up with all of those people later that day or in the night. And they asked a series of questions to assess where their joy level was. To see if it impacted them in any way for better or for worse. And across our entire world, 135 of those countries with the full spectrum of ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds, there was overwhelming data, nearly unanimous, that it really is better to give than to receive. The joy of those who gave was increased. The ones who spent it on themselves was the same or down. However, this is just one study. As I was doing some research this week, I came across several other studies that have been going on for decades. Studies that show how people who live generously, generous people, are much physically healthier in the long run. In other books I've read or studies show that they're actually more successful in the workplace. Now all this adds up to evidence that Jesus was right. It really is better to give than to receive. We were designed, we were created to be givers. And this year, my family has chosen a word to help us focus on where we think God is leading us in 2016. And the word that we have chosen is generous. In 2015, we learned a lot about generosity, both giving in ways that were really uncomfortable and stretching for us, and also receiving in ways that were equally uncomfortable and equally stretching. But in the end, all of it was an incredible blessing. And it has awakened in me, in us, an awareness of the centrality of generosity for the Christian life. A truly generous life is one that cannot be lived in your own control. A generous life is a life that's lived by faith. And we want our family, I want our family to become a hub for generosity. And frankly, I pray that our church will continue to grow in this as well. This church has been a generous church for more than two of my lifetimes. We have met our budget every year and we have given away a remarkable amount to the global cause of Christ. We'll have an update next Sunday to see where we landed in our budget for this last year as we're still counting the year-end gifts from last week. But the, generous, the generosity of our people is already overwhelmingly evident. And I can tell you, as a pastor of this church for the last almost 11 years now, this is truly a generous place. It's a special place. I get to see things that I know very few people get to see. As something comes up in somebody's life in our church, and I get to see, I get to witness so many people gather around them and give sacrificially to provide support, care, or whatever it is that they might need. Our family has been on the receiving end of that. This truly is a generous place. And that is all good. It's amazing, in fact. But the generosity I want us to talk about this morning is much, much broader than just financial generosity. In fact, I'm going to talk very little, if at all, about financial generosity this morning. And I want to assure you that there is no special project announcement at the end of the sermon. <laughs> I'm going to talk about what I call gospel generosity. 
and it covers all the areas of our lives. Everyday generosity that makes up a generous life and opens the door for us to be ready when those big generosity moments present themselves. Now, I know that some of you are here today and you're cringing in your seats. You're thinking, if the church talks about money one more time. But I want to present to you that maybe, just maybe, if you're feeling a heavy dose of defensiveness rising up in you right now, it might be an area that God wants to do some work in your heart. So I wanted us to do this together. We're going to take a deep breath. You ready? On three. One, two, three. Ah. All right. Let's do this. So open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to look at the first nine verses. It'd be easy to do a whole sermon series on these two chapters, chapter 8 and 9, but really we just have time for these first nine verses this morning. It's a passage that's been a source of clarity for me as we've honed our focus on generosity, and I'm excited to share it with you this morning. Let me give you a little background before we read it. This is Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. And he's just turned a corner in the book, and he's now presenting to them two examples. The examples of the church in Macedonia in northern Greece, and the example of Jesus. And he's trying to inspire them, to encourage them to become generous, or to fulfill the pledge of generosity that they had already given. So let me read it, starting in verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made in the beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So in just a few sentences, Paul peels back the layers of the Macedonian generosity, this incredible, amazing, overflowing generosity, to illuminate the driving force, the motivation that lies behind their response. Now the reason this is important for Paul, and the reason it's important for us, is because he's not just after a check or a gift, or an act of service. He's after true generosity. God-motivated, others-centered, generosity that is modeled after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a gospel generosity. It is a generosity, a giving of who they are, not just of what they have. This kind of joyful and loving generosity is greater, more pure, more potent, and more life-giving. But how? How do we get there? What makes up gospel generosity? 
Well, these verses, not surprisingly, do an amazing job of breaking down how this works. Now here, listen closely. Paul is saying, receiving unlimited grace from God produces an overflowing joy in us that results in gospel generosity to others. Did you catch those three layers or three movements of gospel generosity? First, it's receiving unlimited grace from God. Producing an overflowing joy in us. Resulting in gospel generosity to others. The vertical, the internal, and the horizontal. Now these first two layers, grace and joy, deal with the driving force, the motivation for generosity. And they're really below the surface. You can't see them. They're invisible to the human eye. But this third layer, gospel generosity, is above the surface. It's concrete action, so it is visible. Now, as far as Scripture is concerned, your motivation for giving is just as important as the giving itself. Because unfortunately, it is possible to give in a selfish way. Giving for what you think it might give you. A feeling, honor, respect, accolades, an identity, prestige, or even fulfilling an obligation, or even, how about this, alleviating a feeling of guilt. As Paul has said in a previous letter to the church in Corinth, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul is reminding the church in Corinth and us that while it is possible it is possible to give without loving. We're only kidding ourselves if we think we can love without giving. This is what he means in verse 8 when he says he's testing the sincerity of their love by looking at their earnestness to give. Now notice it doesn't say he's looking at the amount. He's not looking at what they give. He's looking at their earnestness, their desire, their drive to give. Sincere love that is motivated by the grace of God and the resulting joy will produce an earnestly generous life, regardless of circumstance, just like it did for the Macedonian church. And I hope as we break down and look at each one of these three parts that we can feel reminded, refreshed, encouraged, and challenged to be people who are gospel generous. So first... Receiving unlimited grace from God. This is the all-important first step, the all-important first ingredient to gospel generosity. And let me tell you, it is good news. Our God, our God is infinite. He's without boundary, he's without limit, and his well of love, his well of mercy, his well of grace will never, ever run dry, no matter what. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He gave up everything so that you and I could be adopted into his family as his sons and as his daughters, as full and complete heirs of an eternal reward that can never, ever be taken away. Jesus paid the price. He paid the price for this incredible ultimate act of generosity, and it is only, only through his poverty that we can become rich. And here's a crazy maker. There's nothing that you have ever done 
or nothing that you will ever do that Jesus didn't already know when he decided to come down from his eternal glory, to be born into poverty, to live as though he had no place to lay his head, he's practically homeless, and to die his agonizing death on the cross. He already knew it all. He knew everything. And he still went through with it. Through Jesus, our God has shown us his true colors. He is a God of unlimited grace a God of unlimited generosity. Jesus has already given us everything. And when the reality of this unlimited vertical grace of God penetrates to the core of who we are, it changes us. It fills us with gratitude. It fills us with joy and then explodes out horizontally in the form of generous expressions of love. It overflows. We have to understand, we have to believe that our unlimited God's kingdom is a kingdom of, hear me on this, it's a kingdom of abundance. It is not a kingdom of scarcity. Because the fear of not having enough will stop the love of generosity dead in its tracks. Now, it's important that I clarify something here because all sorts of people misrepresent and misunderstand this. This does not mean that God will give you more if you give. This does not mean that God will bless you in a material sense. But what it does mean is that we can't let the fear of scarcity, this fear of not having enough, keep us from living the generous life when God gives us that uncomfortable prompt, that nudge to do so. Because ultimately, it's not about this material wealth anyway. We can give generously because we have an eternal perspective. But I have to be honest with you guys. This isn't easy. This is really, really a hard thing. It's scary to let go of control and to trust that God will provide. But I can promise you that there's no more exciting or joyful way to live. In John 6, 5 through 15, we have an amazing story that really depicts the kingdom of God as a kingdom of abundance and not of scarcity. It's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Some of you might be familiar with the story, but let me recount some of it for you. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he's amassed quite a following, and he looks, and he sees this hungry crowd of people, and he tests his disciples with this question. He says, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, some of his disciples, most of them, scoffed at the impossibility of this question. Ha, what are you talking about? That's impossible. But another disciple said to him, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? I think his question, the question of this disciple, Andrew, perfectly summarizes our attitude as fearful people. Let me explain. The needs are so huge, and my resources are so small. What can we do? Now, the obvious implication of what he is saying, I think we can miss this, is he's saying something like this. Let's just hold on to the little bit that we have, so at least we won't go hungry. But Jesus knew better. 
He knew the unlimited abundance of God's kingdom firsthand. So he took the bread, the fish, he gave thanks, and then he instructed the disciples to give out to everybody as much as they wanted. This is the shift of vision Paul is calling us and the Corinthian church to in in this passage. The shift from looking at our meager resources, our loaves and our fish, as scarce items that should be hoarded and protected, to seeing them as precious gifts from God, which are to be shared with gratitude and an overflowing joy. This is what we see in the Macedonian church. This is what we see ultimately in the life of Jesus, who gives himself even to the point of death. Because he knows that the abundance of God is even greater than the grave. And the story of the feeding of the 5,000 really ends with an amazing exclamation point. As the disciples walk around, probably humiliated with these large baskets, 12 large baskets, filling them with leftovers. Our God is a joyful gift giver. He is a God of abundant generosity, and our journey towards gospel generosity begins with receiving the unlimited grace that God has to offer us. Amen? Second, this unlimited grace given to us produces overflowing joy in us. There is great, great joy in knowing that everything we have and everything that we will one day receive is a divine gift. It's a gift. Every single bit of it. Even the parts that you think you have earned, you haven't. There are hundreds, thousands of other people who could do your job better than you, who could do what you do better. What you have is a gift. A gift that was born out of love, that was given freely from an abundant and unlimited God. Now, I hope it already makes a little bit more sense, but I'm sure as we are reading through the passage, or if you are listening carefully or reading along with me, which I hope you were, uh, you are probably a little confused by some of Paul's math in this passage, especially in verse 2. It says, In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So let's get this straight. Severe trial, overflowing joy, plus extreme poverty equals rich generosity? What? How does that happen? How does that work? How can this be? Have you ever known somebody like that? Have you ever been with somebody who is going through a severe trial or hardship and yet you can sense something in them or you've experienced something in them, in others focused, a, a joy, something deeper, something even greater? When I think about that, the best example I've seen of that was my grandma. She was diagnosed with cancer before I was born and had honestly no business being around for any of my life. But God gave her that grace. And although her body was wasting away more and more every day, there is nobody in this world, apart from my parents and my wife, who have made a bigger impact on my heart than her. Because she was so abundantly generous. Not just that she gave me a dollar here and there, 
But she was so generous with her love, with her encouragement, despite her circumstance. There was a joy present in her that overflowed even her circumstance. Another way to think of it is this. Have you ever seen those like pyramids of cups or glasses that sometimes people make? I I don't do this, but I've seen it, right? They build like this pyramid of glasses, and then what they do is they slowly fill the glass on top, right? And as that glass on top fills to overflowing, it starts filling the glasses below it. And as they fill to overflowing, they start filling the glasses below that and so on and so forth until every glass in that pyramid is full to overflowing. The overflow has nothing to do with the glass, has nothing to do with the cup. It has everything to do with the ample source. There is a saying that says a glass can only spill what it contains, and that is true. You see, it's all about what we allow ourselves to be filled by. Now, again, this joy can coexist. This overflowing joy can coexist with suffering and struggle as it did for the church in Macedonia, as it did for Jesus, as it did for my grandma. But I find that so encouraging, and here's why. I find it so encouraging because the joy described in this passage is not some sort of uh, joy I need to build up with my own energy or a fight that I need to maintain by my own strength. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It is only something we can receive when we stay connected to the unlimited grace of God that gives us an eternal perspective on our successes, on our failures, and on our hardships. And when that joy, when that joy comes in us, when it flows into us, it overflows. It overflows into gospel generosity regardless of circumstance. A joyful giver is someone who is overfilled. Overfilled with gratitude and eternal perspective. And someone who gets to experience the multiplied joy of being a gift giver. So finally, gospel generosity to others. Now this generosity, this kind of generosity, is the kind of generosity that tells a story. As an action, I think it's about as close as we can get to telling the actual story of Christianity itself. Because when we're generous, we're embodying grace. We're expressing undeserved Sacrificial, others-centeredness. And that's why I call it gospel generosity. And I'm convinced that in our culture today, as I said earlier, there is hardly anything more countercultural than sacrificial generosity. Because what is our culture all about? Give, 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 give. Take, 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 take. Collect, get more happy. Be more satisfied with your life. The person who gives for joy just doesn't make any sense. There's no explanation our world has to explain that. And it's more of a feeling. It's not a feeling or an attitude. It's concrete action. It's a concrete way to express the grace of God. The grace of God, which, mind you, was also expressed in concrete action. As Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose. Receiving unlimited grace from God produces overflowing joy in us that results 
in gospel generosity to others. And this kind of gospel generosity can only happen when all three of these movements are working fluidly together. If we remove an element, intentionally or unintentionally, it all breaks down. And our actions will no longer be an accurate reflection of God or the gospel. Now, by his grace, he can still use us because we're always flawed. But when we break down this God-designed flow, this flow from grace to joy to generosity, our actions and our lives will tell a different story, a story that's a perversion of the gospel. And that alternate story, that false story, will become a destructive force in your life, in your testimony, and in our witness to the world. Now hear me, this is a big deal. See the flashing lights here. Because when we aren't representing this kind of gospel generosity, we aren't accurately representing God at all. Now let me clarify two things here. I'm not saying you should be unwise in your giving or flippant. You need to be wise. We need to be discerning. I'm also not saying that giving is always the best answer. Sometimes not giving is the most generous thing that you can do. But these aren't excuses either. We can't let ourselves have this double standard where we say, I don't want to give to this person or that person or that church or that ministry because I don't know exactly how they're using every dollar and I don't think they're using everything to perfect thing. Now, we have to be discerning, but we can't have a double standard that says, I'm not going to give at all because I can't trust anybody, so I'm just going to keep it and waste it myself. And we can't also say that I don't know what this person is going to do with it. God is nudging me to give to this person. I'm going to do it, but you know, I don't know what Scott's going to do, so I'm not going to give it to him. Remember that giving is about two people. Not just the receiver, but also the giver. What is it that God might be wanting to do in your heart through giving? How might your faith grow when you give in a situation, in a way that's beyond your comfort zone, beyond your understanding, but you obey? when God calls you. So let me throw some math, some alternate storylines to you of how when we break down this gospel flow from grace to joy to generosity, what can happen? The first one, let's put it up. Joy plus grace minus generosity equals selfishness. That's not the gospel. The gospel is selfless. Second one, grace plus generosity minus joy equals bitterness. The gospel doesn't produce bitterness in us. It produces gratitude. Or the third one, joy plus generosity minus grace, that's self-righteousness, legalism, burnout. It's not a reflection of the humility and the daily dependence that we need as we live in the gospel. But there is another way, the last one. Grace plus joy plus generosity equals a tangible expression of the gospel. That's why Paul shares all three parts in this passage. So if you're here this morning and you want to take a next step towards gospel generosity, I want to challenge you to pray through these three things, to ask God to help you, because I know he will. He is a generous God after all. And I also want to give you a few pragmatic pieces of advice, some lessons from this passage that I think will help you grow in your generosity. First is this. Tell stories when it's appropriate. Now, it's, it's not said explicitly, but it's implied in this text. We're being 
sold, I guess. We're being influenced. Vision is being cast to us about generosity by Paul sharing two stories with us. The story of the Macedonians and the story of Jesus. So my encouragement to you is to tell stories where it's appropriate. Stories that give God the glory, that give him the credit. And especially, 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 tell the gospel. Remind yourself of the incredible generosity of God. Because it all starts with his unlimited grace. So, share stories when appropriate. Secondly, giving was their idea. Verses 3 and 4, they urgently pleaded for the privilege to give. If you're here today and you struggle with giving... I want to encourage you to ask God to give you an opportunity and obey it. Because when giving is your idea or when it's prompted, when it's not somebody else's agenda, it feels a lot more like an opportunity than an obligation. Because when you're only giving when people are asking you and it only is always an obligation, you will lose a vision for what generosity is meant to be and how it's supposed to function in your life. The giving was their idea. Thirdly, they gave according to what they had, not what they didn't have. The truth is, because of their poverty, their gift was probably really small. But no matter what the circumstances are, here's the good news. We always have something to give, always. If we don't have a single dollar to our name, we can still live an abundantly generous life. In fact, I want to encourage you to think small. Think really small. I know when we think of generosity, we often think of big things, and some of you here today might be feeling a nudge for God asking you to do something big. I I want you to do that. But I don't want us to miss the small things, the small opportunities that we have daily to give generosity. I recently read this book, a book that was given to me by uh, a man in our church who has really exemplified generosity to me. And in this book, it's filled with a bunch of great stories. It's called I Like Giving. Um, He has one thing he says in here that is honestly, it's pretty corny, but I really like it, so I'm going to share it with you guys. He says this, We should see ourselves as Christians as secret agents of generosity everywhere we go. That we are looking and listening for the nudge from God for the opportunity to be a blessing. And when that nudge comes, we accept the mission and we follow through. I love that picture of being a secret agent of generosity, awaiting the nudge of the Holy Spirit and following through on the mission he's given us. How amazing would it be if we all left here today with that mission? The truth is, we have that mission. The question is, will we accept it? There are all kinds of different generosity. I wish I could share all the different ways with you. You think of celebration, helping others grow, forgiveness, encouragement, humor, respect, compassion, loyalty, listening, hospitality, friendship, sharing an experience with someone. And I know giving can be awkward. It can be hard. But when true gospel generosity is your motivation, you will find the best way to give while also honoring the receiver because that's what Jesus did for you. I have failed at this countless times. The reason we are picking the word generous for our family this year is because this is an area God has really been working on in our life. I can't tell you how many little moments I've passed up on a daily basis where I have failed to be a generous person. But I can also tell you there have been times by God's great grace where I've accepted the mission and I've followed through. 
There's one story I want to share with you, and I want to share it not because I'm great, but because this is a great example of me being as stupid and stubborn as a mule. I was getting our car fixed, and um, it, you know, these things always cost like five, six times more than I think they will. I'm not really a car guy. And so we have this huge bill. I'm sitting in the car shop, and I call my wife, and I'm like, oh, man, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? Complaining to her over the phone, so frustrated. And then I hear, overhear this woman. She's a single mom. She's at the counter. Her car has stopped to work. She has no way to get to work. She has no way to drive her kids to school or their activities, and she cannot pay her bill. And I feel the nudge. I feel the nudge. Go pay for this. And I said, kindly, no thank you. (laughs) And so I'm having this wrestling match on the inside of me. She leaves. And there's a sense in which I'm disappointed myself, but I'm also sort of relieved. You guys know that experience? And then she comes back in. And I say, okay, this time I really have to follow through. And then she leaves again. And so I quickly, I walk up to the guy and I say, look, I know this sounds weird, but God is telling me I have to pay for this woman's repair. I should have asked how much it was first. (laughs) 50% would have been fine. Uh, I have to do it. Don't tell her it was me, but please tell her that God is providing for her and that he loves her. And then I sat back down. He was completely shocked. Probably because I was sweating profusely. (laughs) And I looked terrible. But he was shocked. She was shocked. That kind of generosity doesn't make sense. And it's not because of anything that is good in me. It is purely because the God of unlimited grace filled up my cup to overflowing and gave me an opportunity to express his gospel in an act of generosity. How about we leave here, and how about we remind ourselves of that great glory? How about we receive the unlimited grace from God that produces overflowing joy and that results in gospel generosity to others? Amen. Father God, thank you for your incredible grace in our life. Forgive us for being so ungenerous, so self centered. God, please remind us again of your goodness. Remind us again of your generosity and move us, move us, God, in our stubbornness to reflect your glory and your love to the world around us. Amen.